Good morning. Before we begin in the sermon, I just want to thank you all who have been praying for me, thinking of me as I've just now finished my first year of coursework. Um, so I'm relieved to have the summer off, and uh, we'll have a couple more years of coursework to go. So I, I'm thankful again for that opportunity and pray that, that my studies will bear fruit in, in the ministry and in the life of the congregation. And uh, I'm thankful for your support in that. And just wanted to mention that before we get started here. This morning's sermon will be from Galatians 5. We'll continue to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, as Pastor Steve has been preaching on the last few weeks. Uh, there's a, the sermon text is on page 826 in the Pew Bibles, as well as there's a sermon outline uh, in the bulletin. We've been seeing the importance of the Holy Spirit, perhaps the neglected member of the Trinity, the one uh, who sort of works in less visible ways, uh, or is less emphasized in terms of Scripture, and yet we know his role is vitally important, and that he is, is God in the third person of the Trinity, in harmony and in distinction from God the Father and God uh, Jesus the Son. Galatians 5, we're laying the groundwork for the next few mo- uh, weeks and maybe months as, we're take, as we will be taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit over the next few months that we find in Galatians 5. But before we get there this morning, this is sort of a preparatory sermon as we, con- as we uh, get the bigger context of what's happening in Galatians 5. And as we see the work of the Spirit is contrasted to the work of the flesh, the work of the sinful nature, the work of human life without the Spirit. And we'll see that this morning. The Apostle Paul will draw our attention to that. We remember, of course, perhaps the context of what's going on in this little epistle to the Galatians, this letter from Paul. This was a young church. It was planted by the Apostle in one of his early missionary journeys. This is one of the first letters of Paul that's preserved for us, probably, uh, as part of our New Testament. Paul was uh, alarmed, to, to put it mildly, Paul was alarmed at what had happened to the church after he left. That others had come in and they had begun teaching a different gospel that's not a gospel at all. That they had come in and said, no, you, you, it's not enough to believe in Christ. You have to do these things also. You have to, be, you have to uh, keep this part of the law. And the church was struggling and the church was in danger. And so the first half of the letter until um, chapter 5, verse... Um, through verse 12, through 512, is this rebuke. It's a strong rebuke. It's the, you know, some of Paul's strongest language to say, don't lose the gospel. Don't think that works can make you holy. Because if works can make you holy, then Jesus died for nothing. And you've missed the whole point of the Old Testament law because the law wasn't designed to make people holy and, and save a person from their sins. The law was designed to point us to Christ, who is the one who can save us from our sins. So that's the rebuke. Then the second half of the letter begins where we begin today. And the apostle begins to teach about life as a Christian, how we're to live, the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The interaction of law and Spirit is part of the focus here. How does the Spirit fulfill the law in us and point us to Christ and show us how to live. So we'll read from Galatians 5 there, starting in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. You, my brothers, were called to be free. 
But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage... Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word and and thank you that it's here for us to read in our language, that you don't leave us uh, as orphans trying to figure out what pleases you and and what is right and what is wrong, but that you tell us and you make promises to us in your word. And so we need your help to understand these things and we need your help to apply them to our lives. We need to be changed as we encounter your word. And we ask that you would do that in our hearts this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our confession, in, earlier in the worship service, uh, as part of our confession there in the bold print, we spoke these words, Yet the world around us finds our religion unattractive. Is that the case for us today? Can you think of examples in your own life in which people found your religion unattractive? Why do you think they found your religion unattractive? Was it uh, because of your manner? Was it because of your words? Was it because of the idea, this belief that you have that they're sinful people like you are? Was it that they felt that you were smug or self-righteous or holier than thou? Was it because of what they thought that they knew about Christians, evangelicals, Presbyterians, whatever that they had heard through the media or that they had experienced through other people who used those labels for themselves? Have you thought about this question? Why do do people find your religion unattractive? And if so, why? Some of it, what is unattractive to people about our faith, perhaps is based upon misunderstandings and misjudgment. They don't really understand what we think. They don't know any... Christians who are really walking with Christ, and so they misunderstand us. Some, perhaps, is based on ignorance, on the part of media people who report what uh, they think Christians believe, but they don't really know, or they haven't really done much research on the topic. I read an article just this week that was 
just a case in point of how the media in this article, someone well-respected who wrote this article, completely, completely missed understanding of what historic Christianity is and what we believe. Um, but, of course, some critiques of the church, some of what the world sees as unattractive in us, is actually unattractive in the church, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, the church is fractured and broken. The church is weak in various ways. We have an image problem. We need to hire a consulting firm to help improve our image, don't we? That's, that's based on the assumption that our image that we want to project to the world is one of outward righteousness, is one of being holier than everyone else. And so we have a problem because we can't live up to our own standards, and everyone hates a hypocrite, right? If there's a cardinal sin in our world today, it's, it's being a hypocrite. On Friday, I was with the fifth graders in Doran's class on a field trip to Philadelphia. Um, we were on a walking tour. We saw the Liberty Bell. I don't know if you've been there to that little lawn. They call it. It's not the mall. The mall's in D.C. You know, it's kind of this mini mall there where Independence Hall is at one end. And, and uh, our tour guide was telling us that about 10 years ago or so, they were excavating to build the new center for the Liberty Bell. And what they discovered was more of the original foundation of the first presidential house. And our guide was telling us that, that originally, when, when the U.S. Capitol was in Philadelphia, the executive branch, the judiciary, and the, and the legislative branch were all within a block of each other. They were all right there at Independence Hall, and the president's house was right there, too. And that's where George Washington and John Adams had lived when the Capitol was there in Philadelphia. And so part of what these archaeologists discovered that they didn't really, that they hadn't seen before, was an additional part of the foundation of that first presidential home. What, and part of that were the quarters for the slaves. And so our guide was asking the kids, well, do you, got, do you kids, fifth graders, do you know what a hypocrite is? Of course the kids knew. They were attuned to the fact that many of these men who had composed these great documents about liberty and freedom were blind to their own role in the oppression of others through the perpetuation of slavery. We in the church can also be blind to our own sin, can't we? We can make our religion unattractive, can't we? The church will never be a perfect institution until heaven. We'll never be close enough as an expression of the Christian life. And yet we who know better, who are inside, we know that Jesus has made a great difference in our lives, both on the inside and on the outside. It's obvious to us, no matter how poorly sometimes we live it out, that the gospel has made a difference to us. And without it, we would be in a much worse place in terms of both our outward behavior and our inward acknowledgement of our own sin and our own humility. So what difference does Jesus make in our lives? Is it obvious that the Holy Spirit is at work in his church? Our passage this morning takes us to this battlefield battlefield of flesh and spirit, and calls us to the kind of life that only God can produce in his people and in his church. There's a key role of the spirit in producing this kind of life that looks different in the lives of God's people through the spirit. 
before we get to the passage briefly, I would just mention on the, on the topic of Galatians and the role of the Spirit already, that Paul has already pointed to the Spirit's role in a couple of key ways in the letter. In, the, in uh, chapter 3, at the beginning of it, he's, uh, Paul is talking about the, that the believers received the Spirit by believing, by faith, not by their works. And so he's asking them, if you begun by the Spirit, why are you trying to continue in the flesh? It doesn't make any sense. If, you've, if you had the Spirit at the beginning, how do you expect to progress if you ditch the Spirit and just try to do everything on your own? Which was the danger that, the, that the, this heresy that the Galatians were hearing. Later in the letter, so that's a key thing that the Spirit does. The Spirit comes to us when we believe and lives inside of us. Later in the letter, in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, t- Paul talks about the Holy Spirit's role in testifying of our adoption. And that was the theme of, of, uh, from Romans 8 of last week's sermon, that part of the role of the Spirit is telling us that we are, are sons and daughters of God and that he, has, uh, that he is our Father. So already we've seen the key role of the Spirit in Paul's teaching to the Galatians, and occurs a number of other times. Um, but our passage this is um, a more full explanation of the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. To see what Paul's teaching, we need to see how he's teaching it. In your bulletin, I've kind of outlined the structure of the passage within the context. The lines actually at, at, towards the bottom didn't quite line up uh, correctly in the bulletin. The central contrast is in the middle. The works of the sinful nature or the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. So if you see that on your your outline there, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit is the central contrast in the middle. And then one layer outside of that, both before and after that contrast, is this command to obey the Spirit. And then one layer outside of that is this picture that Paul is saying about strife and strife. And outside of that is this calling to love to love. So that's the, the structure that he's put together for uh, teaching this idea. Um, it's a typical structure for the way that, that people thought in the biblical world, both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, different than the way we put together an argument in our, in our Greek-influenced Western logical uh, way that we argue something. We say point one, point two, point three, point four, conclusion, right? We use these points, we build these points, and then we make a conclusion. Paul argues it differently by, by including these ideas uh, in parallel and by putting uh, kind of the main point in the middle. Our Bibles don't ex- actually help us see this because they put the chapter breaks in the wrong place, but it's there. And I think that we can see that, that the outer ideas are repeated and they're showing other main points, especially the first and the last, the introduction and conclusion, as it were, but also that the main idea is, is in the middle, or the heart of it is in the middle. So you can see how this works then in the passage according to the outline. Uh, and Paul is teaching, first and last, about love. At the beginning, in, uh, in verse 14, uh, or 13 and 14, you, my brothers, were called to be, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he ends in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, 
Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. That's an expression, of course, of love. But watch yourself, so that you also may not, may, so that, or that you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and thus, in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So, he roots this love in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The law of the Old Testament summed up in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Testament, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. John uh, 13, 34, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so that's what Paul is referring to, the law of Christ, the law of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Old Testament agree that love is the central thing that is the calling of the Christian, because that's the heart of God. So in the context of this letter, which is about freedom from salvation by the law, Paul Paul wants to show us clearly that the fulfillment of the true law from the Old Testament and from Jesus is about love. And there's much more, of course, that we could say. We would unpack Paul's teaching about the way he describes the use of the law and, um, and, you know, all of that. It's it's interesting. It's uh, more than we can do this morning. But part of what we see is this demonstration of the agreement of Old Testament and New Testament. The centrality of love is the fulfillment of the law of God. And then the opposite, then, of love is the next layer, is this strife that's happening in the, among the Galatian Christians, that they're biting and devouring, that they're provoking and envying one another. So what does law-keeping look like? Well, as we look at this passage, we see this contrast of sinful nature and Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus said similar things about this contrast of good fruit and bad fruit coming from good trees and bad trees. He used a lot of images to express this idea that there's a battle going on within people, that there's a cosmic battle happening, that there's a right and wrong, that there's a good and a bad, and that we're living somewhere sort of caught in the middle it's not a kind of cosmic dualism. Uh, some religions believe this sort of yin and yang kind of thing, a good side and, you know, the good side of the force, the dark side of the force, you know, in Star Wars language, right? It's, it's actually based on real belief systems that George Lucas was influenced by, I think, that this people understand uh, in this kind of system, religious system, there are two deities or whatever, and then they, they're, they're sort of seeking to influence people to their position, but they sort of have a balance. And that was part of the the problem in Star Wars, right? That the Force got out of balance. Different than the way Yoda thought it should go, right? The biblical picture is different. We understand this war between good and evil, but we understand that God is the sovereign ruler over all. There's There's no equal and opposite force. That God can't be stopped and thwarted by evil. He's sovereign. And God even can use injustice for his own purposes, as we see demonstrated most remarkably in the cross of Christ. The most unjust, unfair act in history, God is using for his purposes to bring about the salvation and the redemption of the world. We can't see God's purposes in every situation that we face. We're called to trust him when circumstances are difficult. But the biblical picture is not dualism. The biblical picture is God winning in the end a final victory of good over evil. 
a final accounting of all before God, and a final kind of sorting. In the meantime, we live in this battle, and this passage begins to unpack for us what the battle looks like. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In our world, the battle is between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. More specifically, the battle is inside the heart and mind and will of the Christian who has the Spirit living inside of him or her, and who is also being continually influenced by the sinful nature. The sinful nature, as the Bible teaches us, passed down from Adam and Eve, is this spiritually broken condition that by default we turn away from God. By default, children are selfish and sinful and greedy and rebellious. By default, we grow up with hearts that want to rebel against God and his laws. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own gods. We want to receive the worship of others. We want to think that we're okay without him. Right? We know that this is the general orientation, the biblical picture of the general orientation of everyone based on their sinful nature. So for a believer, this continues to be a battle. The sinful nature, the part of us that's opposed to God, is opposed to God's Spirit in our lives. Now, it's different from the unbeliever, and we can't really sort all of that out now. Paul's writing to believers. He's writing to the, a Christian audience, a church that's struggling. So we don't really have time to talk about this dynamic in the life of an unbeliever. But, the, but Paul says these two are in conflict. And what does he say in verse 17? So that you do not do what you want. What he's saying is, the Holy Spirit leads us in line with the law of God to perfectly do what God calls us to do. The Spirit, most deeply within us, has changed all who believe so that now we want to please God and do all that he commands. Most deeply, this is the biblical picture, most deeply you and I are new creations. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has changed our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He has put a new spirit within us, a spirit that wants to obey God, that wants to follow him. So most fundamentally, most deeply inside of you, if you're a believer in Christ, the spirit lives in you, and the spirit wants you to follow God. And so you want to follow God. The problem is you still have a sinful nature, and so that continues to influence you. That is this conflict in which we live. So, God isn't asking you to do that which you don't want to do. Rather, God is calling you to live by the Spirit, verse 16. To be led by the Spirit, verse 18. To keep in step with the Spirit, verse 26, as Paul describes it to us. All of these are a picture, um, these are a picture of doing what our redeemed hearts want to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that may take kind of a moment for us to, to think about that and for it to sink in. The world thinks that God's laws are this imposition that prohibits freedom, right? That kills fun, that stunts our humanity, right? That God's laws are are coming down opposed uh, by us, and they are. But in the life of the Christian, we have to turn it around. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the laws aren't opposed from the outside. The laws are written on the inside. 
And so we want what God wants because God is living inside of us. And we find that our freedom is gained, as Paul says here. Use your freedom to do good. That your freedom is gained by doing what God says. It's not imposed from the outside. It's welling up from the inside. We find true joy. We find that we gain more of what it really means to be human. Because that's the way God has made us and created us. So Paul is very clear here, right? The, sin, the problem is the sinful nature. The sinful nature is what prevents us from doing what we want to do. Our habits, our natural inclinations, are not perfectly attuned to God's spirit. And this is, and this is what makes life difficult. And it's really practical for us. At the youth retreat last weekend, we were on with the teenagers... Our speaker was sharing about how miserable he was as a believer when he was kind of in this, in the end of high school and beginning of college. He was talking about how he had this period where he was living in rebellion against God. He decided to drift away from God because he thought he would be happier, but he found out that he wasn't happier. And many of us, I think, could share the same kind of story. I had those moments in high school and college when I wasn't really walking with the Lord. I sort of was just drifting away from him. But I wasn't satisfied. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit in me. Because I was a believer. And so the Spirit was showing me that this wasn't what I wanted. And it wasn't making me happy. Even though I thought it would. The world doesn't understand that, but we do. We understand that when we rebel against God, that's not what we really want. And usually it just makes us miserable. Sometimes we don't want to admit it, but it's true. So Paul then gives us a list in verse 20, uh, as we go, of verse 22 of the kind of characteristics that the Spirit produces in the lives of believers. And we'll shift our focus to these uh, in, the, in the coming weeks for the, the sermons of these characteristics. But before we get there, we need to see the contrast, right? The Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The sinful nature produces other kinds of fruit, produces something else. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discourse, jealousy, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul gives a strong warning here regarding these other kinds of behaviors, these works of the sinful nature. And we have to be clear about what is sin and what isn't because the world around us celebrates all kinds of things that God condemns. And this is really obvious, but it struck me this week as I was thinking about this sermon. The Holy Spirit only produces good things in our lives. Right? It's the Holy Spirit. This is obvious. The flesh only produces bad things in our lives. There are a lot of gray areas in our world. There are a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak directly to. There's a lot of need for wisdom and things that we don't understand. But the Spirit doesn't produce gray. The Spirit doesn't produce confusion. And like that. right? The Spirit produces what is good. And the flesh produces what's evil. 
And because of the influence of the flesh on us, we can't always tell the difference. But God is telling us the difference in what is coming out. This list is really interesting that Paul gives here. He makes special note of a category of sexual sin, immorality, impurity, and debauchery, the first three listed there. They remind us of the brokenness of our culture, how people around us have misunderstood and misused the gift of sexuality that God has created for his people and for all people. Certainly, we in the church find ourselves increasingly isolated in our insistence that God provides the blueprint for legitimate sexual expression within the context of heterosexual marriage. In the world of Paul's day, this is a problem, a huge problem, probably even worse than it is in our day, as far as the way that people behaved, the way they understood their sexuality, the way that they thought what was good was not good. The church, of course, isn't immune to this kind of brokenness. If you believe statistics about the rates of uh, adultery and pornography use and divorce and other kinds of sexual sin among church people and church pastors and church staff, it's staggering. It's something that we have to support one another to fight against, something that we have to be honest about our struggles, and we have to cast a vision for what God wants, because that's what we really want if his spirit is living inside us. What we really want is faithfulness and purity and integrity. That's what we really want. And God has put that within us. Paul also lists idolatry, witchcraft, or sorcery as works of the sinful nature. These, of course, deny God's place in the world. Idolatry makes other things into gods. Witchcraft seeks to manipulate evil spirits against the true God and to give us power from evil. These are, you know, in in the context of Paul's day, these are pagan occult practices that were very common. And then Paul gives us a list of interpersonal sins. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. It's interesting to note how many words Paul piles up here. Because he seems to think this is a problem. He's not writing to a bunch of pagans He's writing to the Galatian church. He's writing to our church. He's writing to every church. He's writing to every believer. Selfishness doesn't disappear when I become a believer or when I walk in the front door of the church. My sinful nature wants what it wants, which is opposed to the desires of the Spirit most deeply within me. And part of the ammunition that the church furnishes to a world to find our religion unattractive is these relational sins that beset us who call ourselves by the name of Christ. Paul lists more interpersonal sins than any others. He lists eight of them here, describing them very clearly, with, with each with its own nuance. We could study every one and understand more deeply what's going on. Some are obvious, some are hidden. But these are serious sins that destroy relationships. Four of them are sinful, destructive attitudes. Selfish ambition is competitiveness. It's self-seeking motives. Envy is coveting. It's wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is the result of, of feeding a hungry ego. It's when I don't get enough attention that I become jealous. Hatred this sort of adversarial attitude that I'm against someone else. These four are attitudes 
then we get four that are results of these attitudes. The fruit of it, the works of it. Discord, being argumentative. Fits of anger or rage, outbursts of frustration. Dissensions, divisions among people who see things differently and, and the way that we draw lines to divide. And factions, of course, are permanent divisions. It's, a, it's dissensions to the next level where there are permanent divisions or factions who are trying to uh, win against another faction in what they want. And these sinful attitudes create an environment of hostility, an environment of division, the opposite of love, the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. And we have to be very wary of them. For some, for some people, for some of us, the church is a place to compare myself to others. And so I either feel self-righteous if I'm doing pretty good, or I feel envious and jealous if I'm doing pretty bad. The church can become a place where we want to gain influence. We want to be in positions of leadership. We want to be able to tell other people what to do. The church can be used as a place to put myself forward, to be noticed, to be appreciated, to win the praise of others. The church can be a place of politics, of taking of sides, seeking to win the argument or control the decisions. The church can be a place where I put my identity and my significance in what I do there and who I am there, which may not have a connection with the rest of my life. In so many different ways, we can try to make the church serve us in our wrong-headed needs, in our wrong-headed desires rather than serving the church for the good of the body ahead of ourselves. And these patterns can be very destructive in our lives, in the church, and in our relationships with one another. Paul spends the bulk of his time talking about interpersonal sins for the church in Galatia in this letter, in this passage. He addresses, at the end, drunkenness and orgies. This means a kind of revelry, like, uh, I guess the idea would be like a keg party. Um, in the context. These are problems of substance abuse, people who depend on to seek pleasure and kill the pain that they feel. It's not a controlled use of alcohol, but an unbridled one. Paul also mentions, of course, and things like these. So as he leaves leaves this list, he's content to say, well, and people come up with all kinds of other ways to sin, and so I can't list them all, but don't live like this. There's a warning here. Those who practice these things, those who live like this, this is kind of a, um, a continual, a habitual way of life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what does this mean for us today? What have we seen this morning? The Holy Spirit's role is to lead you toward Christ, producing good things in the life of the believer that please God and glorify Him. You live in a battle between your sinful nature and the Spirit. And Paul makes it very straightforward here. Follow the Spirit or follow the flesh. It can sound like, do this, and it will go well with you. We know it isn't easy to do this, but it's that kind of... The language here is very straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. So how do we do it? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? How do we be led by the Spirit? How do we live by the Spirit? He gives us a list of behaviors that show this contrast 
of flesh and spirit, so we can start by considering these behaviors honestly. Is my life characterized by some of these things, even if other people can't see them? Am I prone to selfish ambition, coveting, creating divisions or factions, immorality and drunkenness, or any of the others? Are these things affecting my relationships with others in the church? If so, I need to take action to fight against this in my heart. I need to confess it to God and to others. I need people uh, to walk alongside me, with me through this struggle. It's very much more difficult to do it alone. And I need to ask the Spirit to change me, often and consistently, particularly in my areas of weakness. And I might need to be patient, because these things don't happen overnight. God's sanctification in our lives isn't quick and, and painless or simple. Also, the Holy Spirit works specifically through the Word of God. The two obviously are in harmony. So, as we read the Bible on our own, as we read it and study it together, we find our course marked out for us. We find instruction and encouragement through the Scripture. We read of God's promises to sanctify His people and that His Spirit will never leave us and that He'll keep us and He'll preserve us. We hear His calling us to a high standard to live differently than those around us. As we read the Scriptures, as we follow the Spirit, we find the grace of the Gospel, don't we? That God has forgiven all of our sins. That He's working to make us more and more into the image of His Son process that will end only in heaven, but a process that has begun now, and that you want most deeply. Even if you don't think so, you do, if the Spirit is living within you. You want it most deeply. The stakes are high in this battle, Paul says. The outcome is certain, but the stakes are high in this battle. God will win. God will surely save his people. He will make them perfectly holy someday. And yet we don't just sit back and wait for that to happen. We struggle. We ask Him to change us. We want to live by the Spirit and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. As we wait for God to make us perfectly holy, we have the Spirit within us. The Spirit is changing our desires. He's making us want the things of God. So, my encouragement to you this week is rely on the Spirit. Seek to listen to His voice. It may not seem louder to you than the other voices, but he will never leave you. He will draw you closer to himself. He will strengthen your heart for this battle. He promises to do so. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, indeed we know of our own weakness, and we know of your strength. And we're amazed when we think that you have put your strength within us through your Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would be people who would be responsive to your Spirit, that we would not quench your Spirit, that we would not say no to a voice, to your voice speaking to us. Spirit, have your way in our lives. Teach us and change us. Help us to have victory over sin that besets us and entangles us. Help us to walk in newness of life and purity. We need your help desperately because we can't do it on our own, and you haven't called us to do it on our own, and so we're thankful for that. May these words continue to be an encouragement to us this week. Remind us of these things. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.